going to um, introduce today's speaker, which is really a pleasure, um, and, it's, and it's actually a chance to also publicly welcome him to the Department of Medicine. Our speaker today is Dr. Eric Shaw. He started his academic career at the University of Southern California uh, with a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry and a minor in Business Administration before going on to Texas Tech to earn both his MD and his MBA. He completed his internal medicine residency at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles and his gastroenterology fellowship at the University of Michigan. He graduated this June and wasted no time getting from Ann Arbor to the Upper Valley and joined our faculty in the section of gastroenterology and hepatology um, just last month as director of the Center for Gastrointestinal Motility, Esophageal, and Swallowing Disorders. Dr. Shah is early in his career, but has already built an impressive resume. During his training, he completed a one-year editorial fellowship with the American Gastroenterology Association, as well as an American College of Gastroenterology and FDA fellowship related to the drug and device registration approval process. He also participated in the University of Michigan's House Staff Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program and is the co-primary investigator on two institutional grants to develop a diagnostic device for dyssynergic defecation. He has a rapidly growing list of peer-reviewed publications uh, in leading journals and has delivered dozens of invited oral presentations, lectures, and posters, several of which have resulted in awards for outstanding research at national meetings. He has expressed uh, his enthusiasm for mentoring residents on research projects in gastroenterology, and I suspect after this morning's conference, he may have a full email uh, inbox from interested candidates. Uh, so please do contact him if you're interested. And we're clearly very fortunate to have this rising star as one of our newest faculty members um, and to have him as our speaker this morning. So please join me in welcoming him to DH and to the podium. so great at uh, patient-centered care, multidisciplinary care, value-based care, and accountable care organizations, um, and uh, shared decision-making. So all of that kind of comes home uh, with uh, a lot of the things we'll talk about. So we'll start with the case. This is a, uh, um, nothing crazy, so just a typical case. 28-year-old female comes to your clinic uh, with one year of abdominal discomfort and bloating on most days. Those are relieved by bowel movements. She has two to three bothersome, loose, non-bloody stools most days of the week, but never at night, without constipation or straining. So she's tried Imodium over the counter, and it did not help. She hasn't lost any weight. She has a normal appetite. Um, she has no other warning signs. So she took two days of sick leave last month due to her symptoms. She had a food poisoning event last year after eating at a local restaurant with results at home within two days. Um, she didn't seek care for that. Uh, she denies history of childhood trauma or abuse. Um, she has no family history of inflammatory bowel disease. Her exam is unremarkable. Um, you tested her for celiac, and uh, uh, the serologies were negative. And she has a blue, uh, blue care network, HMO insurance plan through her employer. So you order a colonoscopy because of the diarrhea, um, refer her to the GI, and try to investigate why she's having this bonus and diarrhea. Um, you get basic labs, thyroid, um, ESR and CRP to look for um, general, a general inflammatory cause. Do you order cross-sectional imaging to evaluate for IBD that she might be missing? Or do you diagnose her with IBS and refer to a dietitian for a low FODMAP diet introduction re-intervention? 
So I'll kind of go over um, um, how we rationalize a typical patient, and then also how we um, what what things we can offer to patients who um, who are a bit more complex and fail first line therapy. So we'll talk about diagnostic considerations, and we'll go over treatment strategies. So IBS is common worldwide. Prevalence in uh, the U.S. is probably about 10%. Um, and in Canada, interestingly, there's a higher prevalence. Uh, so um, during the first year of diagnosis, uh, non-experts in, uh, in a survey to non-experts who were gastroenterologists, primary care, um, and uh, um, PAs and uh, nurse practitioners as well, um, clustered together, uh, the majority of them actually uh, treat IBS as a diagnosis of exclusion because they don't want to miss something that's more serious. Whereas, of course, the experts say it's not a diagnosis of exclusion um, and, uh, and you can make a positive diagnosis. Um, so on that basis of, of difference, an average patient will undergo six blood tests, some sort of outpatient procedure, likely an endoscopy, and at least one uh, either x-ray or CT before they arrive at a diagnosis of IBS. <coughs> not the case that's uh, seen in GI, it's the typical case that affects 10% of the population. So that ends up uh, with a high cost of care for IBS overall annually. Um, this number is from 1998. I imagine it's grown since then, and that has not been studied, so that's something we can do. Um, so we want a smoking gun. We want to be able to say to the patients, we can do a blood test on you, and we can tell you if you have IBS or not. Um, so this is a recent uh, study that came out about three years ago, systematic review meta-analysis that looked at the um, likelihood ratio of ruling in IBS using symptoms, biomarkers, psychological markers, or combinations of the above. And the likelihood ratios just aren't, aren't high enough that it would be adequate for a uh, uh, primary care population of 10%. So you can't really rule in IBS with biomarkers or symptom-based criteria just yet. Um, and then you also can't uh, rule it out. So the likelihood ratio, um, the negative likelihood ratio is better, shall we say, as you go to the left. Um, and with, with symptom-based criteria, biomarkers, psychological markers, or various combinations of those, um, we still don't get adequate, um, we, we can't get adequate diagnosis from, from one single set of criteria. So what about symptoms? We don't have a task, we'll go back to symptoms, and we unfortunately don't have a single symptom that predicts whether patients have IBS. The sensitivity and specificity for pain, rectal mucus, incomplete evacuation, blue stools, war stools, et cetera, are not good at saying, aha, this patient might have IBS. So what we've done is we've, this is a complicated slide, so we've combined uh, different symptoms all together to try to really hone down what is the exact set of symptoms we can use to identify a patient who has neural bowel syndrome. This is the most recent iteration of the ROM4 criteria. And so a patient has irritable bowel syndrome by ROM4 if they have recurrent abdominal pain for an average of at least one day per week in the last three months. And they have to have two of the following. So related to defecation, associated with a change in frequency or form of the stool, including appearance, and they have to be fulfilled within the last three months with symptom onset that keeps going at least six months prior to the diagnosis. So this is a study of over 400 patients known to have IBS by their primary care providers. And the criteria, starting with the meaning criteria in 1978, and then the iterations of Rome, this was published before Rome 4 came out. Um, but I suspect what, what uh, my point here will probably be about pretty similar. And uh, there isn't that, there isn't good overlap, and the uh, patients identified as having IBS by the various criteria moves, even though the primary care providers say, yes, this patient does have IBS. So imagine that you are this one patient here, uh, and with the Manning criteria in 1978, uh, this patient is, in, is within this circle representing the Manning criteria. That patient has IBS. So Rome comes out. This patient no longer has IBS. Rome 2 comes out over here, this circle. The patient does have IBS. Rome 3 comes out. The patient does not have IBS anymore. And you can see the frustrations that happen in, in, uh, in uh, diagnosing these patients effectively. So what is IBS? I like to think of it in clinical practice as chronic abdominal pain associated with altered bowel habits without alarm features, and it's more of a clinical gestalt. You know it when you see it. What about discomfort? So Rome 4 took out the word discomfort, but if you see a patient who has discomfort relieved by bowel habits, is that IBS? I would argue yes. The reason that it was taken out in Rome 4 was not because discomfort isn't important, 
But it's because discomfort can't be translated into multiple languages because some languages and cultures lack the word for discomfort. And because Rome, 4 is, Rome is intended to be a global criteria, the word was taken out. And that's controversial. So clinically, discomfort probably should be included in, uh, in a diagnosis as a, um, uh, an alternative to having abdominal pain for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So you don't want to miss something. And this goes back to this IBS diagnosis of exclusion. So, uh, so let's look at the prevalence of colitis, colorectal cancer, celiac, thyroid, and lactose malabsorption between IBS patients and the general population. The idea being, if the prevalence is higher in the IBS population, we should be screening these patients for these other diseases. And we see that there's actually a lower risk of colorectal cancer, which we have not been able to explain, in IBS compared to the general population. And it's not due to patients being, having endoscopies done more frequently. We don't quite know exactly why that is. Um, but there's no increased risk of IBD. Um, there's no increased risk of uh, thyroid dysfunction or lactose, lactose malabsorption. So we don't necessarily need to be testing these patients for these other diseases unless there's something that uh, comes up in their history that warrants us doing so, with the exception of celiac disease. So 4.7% of patients with IBS-like symptoms um, will test positive for celiac disease because the symptoms overlap. So in our guidelines, we do recommend testing for celiac disease in patients um, who, we, who we think have IBS, um, just to make sure we're not missing that. What about labs? So most of the labs we order have, uh, effectively don't change management at, at the end of the day. So, um, so for a BMP, results in zero to two out of 200 patients that have been studied exactly on this topic and a change in management. Same for CBC and all the way on down the list. So really about zero to maybe 6% for TSH, um, depending on the context, but, but, um, but it, usually most of the testing doesn't automatically result in a change in management if we just chop in all the tests. So what about IBD? So this is a study from three years ago. Um, it looked at fetal calprotectin. I'm not showing you data on ESR and CRP because calprotectin is more widely available now. Um, but uh, the calprotectin, if it's low, we can use it to rule out IBD in patients who have, say, a family history of IBD and, um, and IBS-like symptoms. Um, and so if the fetal calprotectin is 40 or below, on the black line, um, about 90% of patients with a calprotectin of 40 will, have, will uh, not have IBS or IBD. The rest of them will have IBS, and a very small percentage at 40 or below will have IBD. So as the calprotectin increases, we see that, uh, that the likelihood of having IBD goes up. Um, and so that's where this is useful, is really as a rule-out screening test. ESR does poorly, and just for sake of time, I'm uh, leaving that data out. So alarm symptoms are important, of course. So if a patient has rectal bleeding, abdominal mass, anemia, iron deficiency, weight loss, um, we should be worried about colon cancer. So um, and so we want to uh, we want to evaluate those patients. If they have a family history of IBD, um, that's a good time to consider ordering a fecal calprotectin and talking to them a little more about um, any other investigations that they might need, um, as well as um, family history of colon cancer and celiac as well. But celiac, we should be testing everybody. So uh, we did a study last year looking at, um, and this is a little bit of an aside, but I, we looked, did a study looking at IBS with constipation compared to chronic constipation. And what we think is that IBS kind of exists along a spectrum. If the patient's chronically constipated, did they not have any pain? And when did they start to have IBS? And so we looked at uh, a nationwide survey of 70,000 patients uh, identified patients from that survey who had IBS with constipation or didn't have IBS but they had chronic constipation. We just wanted to see how miserable they were in each of these areas. And we, did, we found that abdominal pain and bloating, half of patients with chronic constipation had abdominal pain and bloating. They didn't meet criteria for IBS, but they're suffering miserably from abdominal pain and bloating, heartburn as well, nausea. So it's not just the constipation that affects them. So if a patient is constipated, um, use the guidelines for constipation. Um, and so you'll do a, a history, a physical exam, consider any labs you want to do, and you give them the first round of laxatives. Um, and so, and this is important in the IBS evaluation because you could actually be dealing with chronic constipation um, that as a modality of having IBS, and this is something you can intervene on um, 
as well. So you do a round of laxatives. So a laxative is really going to be an aggressive good trial. Generally, we like to use Miralax um, and make sure they take it every day. If they have diarrhea, they should still be taking it because it's more of a maintenance therapy. And if they fail an initial round of laxatives, what we want to do is differentiate whether they have a pelvic floor disorder, um, which they can, which can respond to physical therapy, or if they have slow transit or a transit issue in their colon, um, or if they have normal transit and they actually might have IVX. So uh, the way to do this, and this is our first line test for our guidelines um, that we have, uh, we insert a balloon into the rectum, we inflate it with water, and we ask the patient to poop it out. If they can poop it out, um, then uh, uh, great, they don't have pelvic floor dysfunction. If they can't poop it out, that's maybe a marker of pelvic floor dysfunction as well. Um, there's another device that's used at the same time called anorectalmanometry, um, and this measures the function of the muscles. We put these two tests together because they measure slightly different things, and the concordance is not perfect, um, and we try to make a diagnosis of uh, pelvic floor dysfunction. So if, it's normal, if this testing is normal, we evaluate for a colon transit issue. If it's abnormal, we evaluate for a defecatory disorder. Now, granted, a lot of patients are constipated. Does everyone need this test? Probably not. So after laxatives, um, in, uh, in a primary care population, there are other uh, laxatives you can use. There are pharmacologic agents that are out, such as lenaclotide, glucoprostone. So after patients fail that, if they're miserable and having abdominal pain, we at Dartmouth do offer this test, uh, and the treatment is very different. Instead of rounds of laxatives, we send them to physical therapy to, um, uh, to essentially correct their um, uh, deprecatory habits, and it works. So. Um, so our framework for diagnosis is to base a positive diagnosis on a good history. Um, it's okay to use criteria, but they're really meant to identify a well-selected patient population for clinical trials. So in practice, um, we don't need to rely on Rome 4. If they don't meet Rome 4, but you think they have IBS, they probably do. Um, so there's a good recommend, a strong recommendation to order celiac serologies. Um, but other than that, as long as there are no other warning signs or family history, we can generally stop ordering any tests. Um, and then, of course, we want to do colonoscopy for age-appropriate colon cancer screening or if alarm signs are present. So, hey doc, how, how am I going to do now that you diagnosed me with IVX? So about two-thirds of patients at 10 years still have symptoms. So that means that a third of patients, their symptoms go away. Uh, and 58% of patients had symptoms at six years. So in that study, over 40% of the uh, patients were asymptomatic after six years. So the, uh, the disease can wax and wane. Um, if they have diarrhea or constipation, that can also change. Um, and so the mobility complaint that bothers them can alternate between diarrhea and constipation as well. So it's a waxing and waning disease, and they may not be lifelong. Um, so, um, so that's good to talk to patients about that. This isn't something that will that may afflict them forever. So we'll move on to talk about treatments, um, and I'm going to frame this by um, talking about talking about whether the drugs work and how we measure that, and that does directly impact when we see a patient how we talk to them and counsel them on uh, on um, on uh, the risks and benefits of therapy. So efficacy in clinical trials um, that are reported does not always translate into effectiveness in clinical practice. So uh, we have to take into account adverse events and how impactful those are on patients, work productivity losses, quality of life, and how the patients are able to recover and function um, beyond just the clinical trial. Do they have relief of symptoms? Well, sure, they have relief, but what happens next? Um, and then cost. And I'll talk a little bit about cost at the end. That's actually where I'm really interested is in cost and access to care. Um, and uh, we have a lot of great drugs, we have a lot of great uh, interventions, but can patients afford them? Um, and then all, what that does is once you understand effectiveness a bit better, you can use that to design better clinical trials that are more, um, that are more impactful and uh, useful when you're talking to a patient, improving eligibility criteria as Rome iterates, um, and, uh, and for post-market monitoring purposes, essentially if you know a drug has side effects, what do we do next to, um, to uh, help define what, what patient population is appropriate? So IBS was um, given to the field of GI. Um, and so in GI, we like, to, um, we like to measure poop. And so we decided to subtype IBS based on the underlying bowel habit, ranging from constipation on one end to diarrhea on the other. Um, so we've done that. So we subtype IBS based on IBS with constipation, IBS with diarrhea. So these are treatments that are indicated for diarrhea-predominant IBS, constipation-predominant IBS, 
I'm listing out the therapies. Uh, if the recommendation from one of our societies isn't read, they're suggesting don't use it based on that level of evidence using grade. Um, and then the AGA as well, cost of the drug, adverse events, complicated slide. So we're not actually going to go over it. What I'm going to do is blank out the, um, the everything over on the left. Let's just go down the list of adverse events. Constipation, cramping, nausea, constipation, abdominal pain, bloating, discomfort, nausea, diarrhea. So the adverse events of these drugs, it really sounds like patients are still suffering from IBS. So what we're trying to do using our motility-based subtypes of IBS is normalize bowel habit. But what we really do a lot of times is we just alternate. So if the patient comes in constipated, they end up with diarrhea. If they have diarrhea, they end up constipated. Remember the IBS uh, waxes and wanes, and so do the bowel habits, and the bowel habits can change. And this is a long-term disease. So how does this bear out the data? So, um, so what I'm showing you here is we calculated what we call the functional net value. And so we take the efficacy of the drug compared to placebo, this is the excess efficacy of the drug reported in the clinical trial, based on does a patient report they have adequate relief of symptoms, which is a global assessment, do they feel better um, for half the time in the clinical trial? 13.3% of patients on, this is a drug, Velocitron, um, that is still out, but it's restricted. Um, we had 13.3% of patients benefit from drug compared to placebo. On the other hand, um, we can define constipation. This is IBS with diarrhea, so constipation is not a good thing. 16.9% of patients compared to placebo, um, taking the placebo effect out, suffered from uh, constipation. And so if we take the benefit of constipation, we do a subtraction, maybe we have a negative functional net value. Um, for Paxman, um, doesn't cause uh, constipation, so that stays the same. Tricyclic agents notoriously do constipate, so the functional value drops to negative 3.9%. Um, and this is based on whether patients reported constipation as an adverse event in clinical trial. Same for uh, uh, IBS with constipation. We have linaclotide, glucocrostone, and tegasterol, which is no longer on the market. Um, but there may be new drugs coming out uh, with similar mechanisms, so I'm leaving it on the slide. Um, and we go from a benefit of 19.8% uh, to 4.7%. Um, and uh, same for glucocrostone, same for tegasterol. So we see that the overall value of these drugs potentially could be attenuated. So in clinical trials, the more uh, adverse events you have, the more patients say it works. So, uh, so that kind of complicates things a bit more. Uh, and maybe it's because the patients feel the drug working. You don't know. Um, and so ultimately, it doesn't matter if the patient complains of diarrhea with linaclotide or um, if they have constipation with a tricyclic. They no longer have their original complaint. Maybe they don't care and they're happy. So what patients are doing is they're weighing the relief of their IBS symptoms against the cost of the drug and those adverse events, and they're making a decision, would I rather go back to having IBS in the first place, for which I was seen at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, or which is, not, which is miserable, or would I rather stay on the drug because it's working? So what we did is we looked at the number needed to treat, so this is our measure of efficacy, how many patients do we have to treat for one patient to benefit from the drug, for elocitron, rifaximin, tricyclics, and then elixatiline is new. Um, those trials were spearheaded here at Dartmouth, by the way. Um, and this is the number needed to stop. So this is how uh, the number needed uh, number of patients who took the drug um, until one patient stopped due to an adverse event because they couldn't tolerate it anymore and they'd rather have IBS. What we end up with today is that for three of these drugs, elocitron, tricyclics, elixatiline, between two and three patients would benefit from the drug for every one patient who said, I can't take it anymore because I had an adverse event. This contrast to Rifaximin, but this was an interesting way of potentially measuring that benefit to risk ratio. We did the same thing looking at constipation, um, and we found that, uh, uh, and we found the same thing for linaclotide. So this is frustrating. How do we manage our patients? As, pro as providers, we're all type A. We like to have the answers for our patients, and it's frustrating when we can't help them. So I'm going to go back to 1954, this in American Journal of Medicine, good journal. Um, and I'm going to read to you what type A physicians thought at that time when we didn't know what causal ulcerative colitis. 
So the first symptom of UC frequently appears when the patient is facing a life situation which requires some outstanding accomplishment for which the patient feels unprepared. The psychodynamic implication could be best understood on the basis of the infant's emotional evaluation of the experimental act. This is a good journal. Um, which signified giving up a cherished position on the one hand and an accomplishment on the other. So if we extract the word ulcerative colitis, put in IBS, and update this to 2018, I can see this published in a pretty good journal somewhere, and it might not bat too many eyes. So it just kind of goes to show the frustration that we're having when we don't understand what's going on with, our, with the disease. So what if we start to rationalize IBS not as a syndrome, a collection of symptoms that we can't understand, but instead as a disease? And so I'll talk about two uh, major um, areas of research um, across the country. First, abnormal brain-gut interactions. So we know that visceral hypersensitivity is common in IBS. Um, and so IBS patients, uh, when you insert the balloon I was talking about for constipation, you fill it up with air, what's the maximum amount of air that you can put in before the patient says, I can't tolerate it, take it out? For IBS patients, that number, that's actually quite low. And so that suggests that patients have a hypersensitive rectum, which translates maybe into visceral hypersensitivity, um, and, uh, and that's compared to controls, as well as functional constipation and functional dyspepsia. Um, and then this is some work that came out of UCLA, showing that if, uh, um, if patients had experienced a uh, traumatic event as a child, physical punishment, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, um, that uh, the, the patients who had IBS on the right um, for each of these uh, had a higher likelihood of having had one of these events compared to controls on the left. And so what the thought is, is that that stressful event does set off, um, set off a reaction that leads to um, this uh, pathophysiology. So we, put, uh, we, we uh, presented this at uh, one of our major conferences a couple years ago, um, and uh, we looked at does abdominal pain differ between diarrhea predominant IBS, constipation predominant IBS, and IBS this type. Um, and so we made heat maps of where patients say they have pain. We did find that constipation IBS is they, they experience pain differently. It's more diffuse, it's more severe. It happens more of the time compared to diarrhea, where it's they're in less pain and it's more episodic. And so potentially, maybe these are two actually different diseases with two underlying mechanisms um, or more, um, especially if it's counting for 10% of the population potentially. So, um, so I like to show this picture or something like it to my patients. And what this does is it really drives home the fact that we're not, we don't think it's in their head, um, that we do believe that there is, there is um, a dysregulation between um, uh, between the, the brain and the gut. And um, and this helps to um, really help them understand that we're making a positive diagnosis and we're caring for them. Um, so what we have are tricyclic agents uh, that can treat diarrhea and pain. I don't like to use the word antidepressant um, because they might there is there is comorbid depression for sure, but um, Maybe it's due to symptoms. I don't know. So I like to call it agents um, because what we're doing is we're really treating pain. Um, SSRIs have not been studied that well. The recommendations from the societies recognize that, um, and the data is kind of tacked on from tricyclic agents. We do have psychological therapy, so cognitive behavioral therapy targeting gastrointestinal symptoms. It's resource intensive, but it works. Um, and then exercise came out interestingly in the new guidelines. So, um, and that's a weak recommendation, but it's probably good for everybody. Um, so for uh, other agents that can treat pain, we have antispasmodics. Peppermint oil, interestingly, is an alternative medicine, I guess, but at the same time, it actually does work um, for, uh, for patients with mild symptoms. And then we get into the drugs. So linaclotide glucanotide or guanylate cyclase C agonists, um, and, uh, and those, um, uh, increase the um, secretions within the within the um, luminal wall, and it also um, makes uh, uh, motility more rapid. But at the same time, there might actually be a second pathway that targets pain. There are animal models on that. There's actually a formulation of linaclotide that may target pain specifically. Um, but this is an important topic because now there are two drugs out in this class. Um, does one cause less diarrhea than the other is everyone's question. So we actually looked at that. There's been no head-to-head -head trial. Um, this did cause quite a bit of a stir. Um, but we, looked, we compared the efficacy of the drugs using odds ratios, which takes into account 
the placebo effect and the rate of, of efficacy in diarrhea and placebo, which is important, we found that there was no difference in efficacy, but that both drugs worked. There was no difference in diarrhea as an adverse event. What I said before, if patients have diarrhea, maybe they're happy. So we looked at whether they dropped out of the study because they said, I can't take it, I have too much diarrhea. There was also no difference. So then at the day, both of these drugs demonstrate similar efficacy and tolerability. There were no differences in the odds of diarrhea between these drugs. In the clinical trials, Placanatine had less diarrhea, but it had different endpoints um, for measuring what diarrhea is, and uh, the placebo rates of diarrhea were lower as well. So whether you dose reduce on the drug, if they experience diarrhea, or whether you switch to the other drug, um, we might do that study as an open-label study. You just have to figure out how to get the pills. So, um, but that would be an interesting study for our field as well. So both of these drugs actually are quite effective. So elixatiline, as I said before, um, is um, uh, a lot of the clinical trial efforts were spearheaded here. Um, so this drug is a mixed uh, uh, opioid um, ag agonist antagonist. Um, and it, it does work. It interestingly um, did not meet its uh, uh, clinical trial efficacy endpoint for abdominal pain, even though it sounds like it should. But um, I don't show it, but I presented a, uh, uh, I pulled together the phase two and phase three studies. And if you pull them together, it does work on abdominal pain. They just can't report that. So, um, but as an adverse event, it causes sphincter of OD spasm. So abdominal pain, pancreatitis. In the clinical trials, there were no deaths. There were two deaths reported to the adverse event uh, uh, database from the FDA bears. And, um, and uh, so it's really important that these patients are well selected and it's not just given to, to patients with IBS as overall. And it's for IBS with diarrhea. So we want to make sure patients have not had sphincter of OD issues, pancreatitis, alcohol abuse addiction, or severe liver problems. If they've had their gallbladder out, I'm hesitant to give them the drug. There is a, a lower dose that allows uh, for this drug to be given, but I'm hesitant. So I think it's a great drug to offer, but a very carefully selected population. So we'll switch gears and talk about post-infectious IBS bacterial overgrowth. Um, and this is a completely different ideology of what could cause the exact same symptoms. Maybe it overlaps with, uh, with the first set of, uh, of uh, um, therapeutic agents that I talked about. Maybe it doesn't. We don't know. Um, so that the concept of this is that you get acute gastroenteritis. That leads to chronic low-grade immune activation against vinculin within the ICC cells. Basically, what happens is there's a common toxin. Uh, uh, there's a common toxin between E. coli, Campylobacter, um, and Shigella, CDTB. Um, you form an antibody to that. That cross-reacts to vinculin, destroys your motility. Um, and so when you have abnormal um, migrating motor complexes, that leads to dysregulated motility. And when you have dysregulated motility, you can't clean out the small bowel. The small bowel is supposed to be completely clean, but it's not. And so you end up getting small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which manifests as IBS symptoms. So this is a study uh, that was done in Canada. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a small town in Canada called Walkerton. Um, and uh, in reading the study, it seemed that there was a field of cows on the top of a hill, and there was a large rainstorm. And then when it rained, all of the cow dung went into the city's well. And so a lot of people got gastroenteritis. So from, uh, from the health perspective, they actually followed these patients to determine um, how they did. Of the patients who had self-reported gastroenteritis or clinically confirmed gastroenteritis, those patients had a higher prevalence of IBS compared to the white bar where those patients didn't report having gastroenteritis. And it was, it was a well-known study. Um, and they persisted in having IBS symptoms for a number of years. So this is an animal study. Some of this has been done in humans as well. Um, and what this showed is that this was a model that uh, infected rats with Campylobacter and then uh, found that, uh, patient, that uh, rats with Campylobacter developed this antibody if they were singly infected and doubly infected. Um, and this was an antibody to CDTB, antibody to vinculin. And so they identified the antibody and they did do immunohistochemistry staining to show that this exists in, in uh, humans as well. Um, and so this is, there actually is an approved diagnostic test for IBS on this basis. Um, uh, it's not perfect, but it exists, and I think it just helps along the concept. 
Um, so we do know that there is an altered gut microbiome in IBS. We don't exactly know what that means quite yet. Um, but we do know that, uh, that Bacillus streptococcus go up, bacteroides go down, um, and bifidobacterium, which is in a lot of uh, um, yogurts, that goes down as well. So if you do breath testing to, to evaluate for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we find that breath tests going to the right on this are, uh, are more positive in IBS patients compared to healthy controls. And so that suggests that another piece of evidence that potentially, yes, bacterial overgrowth could explain um, a portion of patients who have irritable bowel syndrome. Okay, so what treatments can we offer our patients? So prebiotics have a weak recommendation and guidelines that came out last month um, that uh, against using those. Um, there's no evidence they work, um, and we have other options. So probiotics, um, there's not great evidence um, but, uh, but there have been a few small trials showing that probiotics can help. Um, Rifaximin is a therapy that is not absorbed, um, has been investigated for treating C. diff as opposed to <clears throat> causing C. diff. It didn't work, but at the same time, um, it was investigated for treating C. diff, and so that's a concern um, of, uh, that people had initially um, that it caused C. diff, and there's no evidence that it does, which is good. Um, and it's not absorbed. And the idea with uh, rifaximin, I like to think, is that you're reducing the cell counts, uh, the um, bacterial counts. You're not, you're not resolving the underlying issue, but you're improving the symptoms. And then there's low FODMAP diet intervention. And so low FODMAP, the concept of that is that you're going to eat more uh, digestible carbohydrates that are easily and more rapidly absorbed in the proximal small intestine that do not pass to the distal small intestine where you might have dysregulated motility, so you're not feeding the bacteria, essentially. So maybe they do the same thing. Their trial's ongoing, we don't know. So this is uh, what a little FODMAP intervention is. Each of the characters in FODMAP stands for uh, a food, uh, a, uh, uh, something you should avoid. So you're trying to have low fructans, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, polyols. Um, kind of complicated to figure out exactly what's in each of these groups. Uh, it's, uh, it's not like some of the more common diets our patients will try. So, um, so I like to think that a dietitian-directed instruction is key and necessary to truly know if patients respond to the therapy, if they've done the therapy therapeutic invention appropriately, before we can say it hasn't worked. Um, so this is the Monash University website. This is a group out in Australia that has developed an app Patients have to pay for it. It's a nominal, nominal amount, but sometimes that can be significant. Um, and, uh, and it's an app they download. And it, it actually very well helps patients to track how, uh, what they can eat, what they can shop for, how they're doing. It's a great app that they can use, but it's just an app. Um, and so uh, they also offer um, certification in uh, FODMAP training. Um, and so Michigan was a big proponent of this uh, too. So our dietitians can actually get certified in how to teach the low FODMAP diet and instruct patients and work with them uh, so they do better over the long term. So does the diet work? Well, uh, this is a study published a couple years ago. Uh, and this is one of the few. This one was, was done nicely. Um, and it compared the low FODMAP diet against, well, what do you use as a control? Um, so they picked the diet. They called it the modified NICE diet. It's a diet, essentially, that's so complicated, patients wouldn't be able to figure out which diet they're on. But we know it doesn't. It's not a little problem with diet. And that's the point. Um, so with 50 patients, we do see that there's a, um, a, a, more patients have adequate relief of symptoms on low FODMAP. The composite endpoint, composites and IBS combine some form of abdominal pain, as well as uh, improvement in their bowel habits consistency response and pain response. Because it's a small study, potentially, or because the diet doesn't work, we can't say. Uh, it did not meet the endpoint for abdominal uh, adequate relief, composite endpoint, or consistency. But it did improve their pain significantly. Um, we like p-values, and that one was nicely low. Um, and, uh, and so the pain response was about half of patients compared to 23% in the Shan diet. Uh, but how does the low FODMAP diet actually affect the gut microbiota? Um, interestingly, this is a study that came out uh, just last, uh, within the last year, 
And uh, so they measured uh, the stool uh, to detect um, uh, uh, the levels of bifidobacter, uh, bacteria, streptococcus, and lactobacillus. And in the low FODMAP diet, all the way on the left, there was a decrease in the relative abundance of bifidobacteria, quote unquote good bacteria, that are in probiotics on the low FODMAP diet compared to sham. So there is some concern that, you know, what is this actually doing to the gut microbiota? Is this helpful? Research is ongoing. The next question is, should we give all patients probiotics if they're on low FODMAP? We don't know. Um, so the idea of the low FODMAP diet is you could potentially enrich your patient population by testing everyone uh, with a hydrogen breath test, or you can just treat them so, uh, because the breath tests aren't perfect. I like to just treat um, but not everyone does. So if they test positive, or I think I'd like to try this route, um, because the patient's symptoms sound like they might actually have this ideology of, uh, of IBS, I'll discuss the diet with them, and I'm a physician, I give them a handout. Um, but what I do with the handout is I tell them to just cut out one high FODMAP food, don't get frustrated, you will get help from the dietitian. Okay. And then I get them in to see a dietitian that I know is comfortable managing the low FODMAP diet. Um, and uh, I actually try to ask them if they can download the app to kind of assist things, but I really wait for the dietitian intervention to truly start the trial. And that's because they're trained in doing this and they're very good at it. I give them four weeks on an elimination trial. And I don't like to think of this as a diet necessarily because we don't want to restrict our patients. We want to reintroduce foods and identify the foods that, uh, that uh, uh, they can't tolerate. And so, well, if it works after four weeks, and I'll have to repeat the dietitian does it as needed to start reintroducing foods and, um, and try to identify potential trigger foods on that list. If that doesn't work, then I'll use antibiotics such as Rifaximin. I don't like using absorbable antibiotics, uh, or, uh, or not, uh, yeah, absorbable antibiotics. Um, and if that doesn't work, I rethink the underlying etiology. Um, there are efforts ongoing. Do you use Rifaximin up front? Do you do the diet up front? Do you do both together? We don't know. Um, and so there are, there are a few trials going on right now to study that, as well as whether breath testing actually makes a difference, or whether we're just sending patients for more tests. So let's talk about Rifaximin. So drugs are expensive. Um, Rifaximin worked, and it's a phase three clinical trial, which was uh, 12 weeks long. There was about a 50% uh, percent of patients reporting adequate relief compared to 40, 45% with placebo. You know, the problem with IBS trials is that the placebo rate is very high. Um, it's a problem in the trials, and they're always working to try to decrease the placebo response rate. So interpreting these data does not necessarily mean that the drug only works half the time or that it helps 10% of populations. It's, it's an issue with how uh, you can design an endpoint that can be positive if the drug works for the disease, negative if it doesn't, um, and mitigate placebo response. And that's an ongoing area of research. But regardless, the drug is um, approved by the FDA. It costs, on average, um, $29.78 cents per pill, and this is how much payers reimburse. That's per pill. You're taking three pills a day, 14 days, so that's $1,250.76 for the healthcare system. So this is what I'm interested in. Is this the right price? Um, I don't know what your experience is, but with prior authorizations, um, it can be tough to get access to drugs that we think might help our patients, even though we know that the drugs have been tested and we know the risk-benefit profile, our patients just can't get, get access to them, even low FODMAP. So from a payer perspective, why are they deciding to cover a drug or not? So going up is the cost of uh, the cost of care for a patient who receives rifaximin or not over the year. To the right, how are the patients doing in terms of their quality of life? Um, the numbers are small for quality of life because you don't die from IBS. Um, one means you're alive with great health. Zero means you're, you're dead. Um, but patients don't die with IBS. They suffer. And so over a year, the numbers are quite small, but over 30 years, it becomes significant. So that's why the numbers are small. So, uh, so if we go from a, from a payer perspective of not covering refaximin at all to formulary restricted access, they have to have failed this, that, and the other. We chose triciplications because some of the payers use that seems reasonable. Um, and we see that with formulary restricted access, it costs a bit more, you're gaining, you're gaining uh, quality of life for these patients. 
if we say, let's give rapaximin to everybody, and we'll use it as a first-line agent, we see that it's, it is more effective than non-coverage, interestingly less effective than formulator-restricted access, but we see the cost goes way up. So what does this actually mean? If we divide the, um, uh, what we're showing you here is uh, uh, how much you have to spend in order to gain one quality-adjusted life here, perfect here in full health. Um, and for unrestricted refraxman access, compared to not covering at all, you have to spend $1.2 million uh, to implement this strategy. And still $171,000 for formulator restricted refraxman access. These prices are high. So why is that? Um, and this leads to why are we dealing with prior offs and we can't get our drugs? So um, on the panel on the left, I'm showing you, uh, you can take your pick. Uh, how much do you want to uh, uh, pay for, how much are you negotiating to pay for a Paximin uh, from a payer and a pharmacy benefits manager perspective? Um, and then how often do you think the patients need to be retreated with Paximin? The color corresponds to the preferred strategy from the payer perspective at the end of the day. So we'll plug in $29.78. Um, we'll say that Rifaximin works and it lasts a long time. Um, and so this is where you end up. Uh, and what you should have is formulary restricted access, which when Rifaximin came out, that was not happening. So what actually happened, and this was borne out in a separate phase three trial that was required by the FDA. Um, there we are. So Rifaximin you have to give on average every 19 weeks. So in reality, when pairs were looking at how much they're they're paying out for a fax, and they said, this doesn't make sense. We're paying too much. And so preferred strategy goes to non-coverage. So notice on the panel on the left, the preferred strategy for unrestricted access, it's not preferred at any level of uh, um, drug price or interval for faxman. But if we reduce the or if we reduce the tricyclic responder rate, we assume for a multi-center data that tricyclics work in everybody, but the data were a bit too positive. When I say multi-center, it was UNC University of Toronto in this fall site. It was a well-done study, but it was not a registered phase three trial. If we bring that down to how well Rifaximin did, which actually is how well all the drugs do when they're subjected to the, um, the, um, the rigorous clinical trial endpoints, which are tough to meet, we see that, yes, Rifaximin could be a potential first-line therapy, but at a dramatically reduced price. So this is an area that I want to be looking at to try to see how can we help value-based and value-price our drugs um, to help understand from a, from a system perspective how much should we be paying so that we can enable access, better access to care for our patients. Um, so that's why I'm interested in it. Um, so stepwise treatment guide. So of course, we make the diagnosis. We make a positive diagnosis, and it's not I think you have IBS, I don't know. It's you have IBS, you can feel confident in that, and you have someone who stands behind you on that, um, and will educate them about the disease, encourage them to see us frequently, um, and regularly follow up. Um, and patients like that, they feel better. Um, first, if it's mild, I start with symptom-based therapy, just targeting the predominant symptom, understanding most patients aren't going to have severe clinical trial IBS seeing gastroenterology. Um, and so these symptom-based drugs actually do work over the counters. Um, the data aren't very good, but again, it works. Uh, for patients who failed that uh, combination of pharmacologic and diet-directed therapy, uh, I like to, at that point, start to think, okay, what is causing the underlying disease? Which of the routes should we take? And then finally, um, multidisciplinary care setting, cognitive behavioral therapy does work. It's expensive to implement, but it does work for refractory symptoms. Um, and so we'll go back to our case and we'll make a positive diagnosis and refer to our dietitian instead of testing. Um, so I'd like to thank you all. Um, this is our center. So it's myself, Dr. Rothstein. Uh, he's not under me, he's the chair of medicine. So uh, Tracia O'Connor, um, Emily Sieglinger. Um, and we offer a full-fledged running motility lab with very experienced nurses. Um, we're bringing on board a uh, psychologist who is going to offer cognitive behavioral therapy into our group which is great. Um, and we also have a dietitian and GI that we work with. So right now, we're with this next set, we're going to be one of the leaders in this field to truly help our patients and help cross the Dartmouth system. So we're really excited about working with everybody here. Thanks.
Because of the association with childhood stress, and because we know that poverty is associated with stress, are there any socioeconomic uh, profiles that are interesting, and does that have any um, implications for sort of the care map that, that you've laid out? Yeah, and uh, I uh, completely agree. There have been studies that identify socioeconomic um, characteristics, but there are variables in a larger demographic study. Unfortunately, that specifically has not been studied. Um, and in, uh, we just submitted the Rifaximin pricing paper, and that was one of the points in the cover letter is, look, out of the last 20 years, the treatment paradigm is focused on drugs diet, which is expensive, you need a dietitian and cognitive behavioral therapy. But our patients don't have access to that. A lot of them don't, um, even if they're insured. Um, so that's an excellent point. Those patients, their treatment options lag 20 years behind our guidelines. Um, so that's something that uh, I want to be working on. I have sort of a related question, I think. So um, this is a disease that people have for decades. <laughs> even say that now because I've been and, and you see them over and over and over again. It's not something that happens for 12 weeks or even 52 weeks, and the trials are that long. And trying to extrapolate cost-effectiveness data, what, particularly I think when you're talking about interventions like dietary education uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy, is really challenging. But I'm wondering how uh, confident we are about the cost-effectiveness of some of those treatments it may actually be very cost-effective over the long term, and how we might get better information to support the use of those treatments. Absolutely. So, um, so we extrapolate data from the clinical trials, and we carry that forward. Uh, the longer we go out, I don't know. Um, and, uh, and this is kind of what a lot of people do, is you don't have the data. So I didn't show it. Um, we did a, uh, I had two residents working with me. We did 3,000 patient start reviews on everybody that took linaclotide at Michigan, um, that that drug, linaclotide is the Dartmouth drug. Linaclotide was the Michigan drug. So we had a lot of patients that we could look at. Um, and doing that kind of study, we were able to see over the years, how are they doing, why did they stop, when did they stop. That's useful type of data that we can plug in to do better cost effectiveness, more better modeling that, um, and uh, that, that might be a bit more robust. Um, New Hampshire does have uh, databases that enable us to do that and follow patients around a bit better than, uh, than most places. So I, uh, we need to do that. So absolutely. Uh, in terms of, um, you talked about the balloon expulsion test and doing uh, manometry to try to figure out you know, what the person has called the Florida synergia, which was related to your IBS. Talk. How about something simple like a SITSMARC study? I mean, is that I mean, it, is that still acceptable, or are the test characteristics not reasonable to distinguish those two? So yeah, that's a that's a great question. So we do um, so we do offer SITSMARCer here, and there are two protocols to do it. We do an X-ray at day um, at essentially at day five, and we just count up the number of uh, markers that they swallow, and uh, if they have more than the number of markers, it's positive. There is a seven-day protocol um, where Essentially, they got an X-ray at day four and day seven, and you count up the markers. You anatomically draw out regions, and then each marker counts as one hour of uh, transit delay. I don't know. We do it. Um, there is another uh, device that's smart pill that um, that we're considering here that can measure colon transit. The problem with measuring colon transit first is that if patients have pelvic floor dyssynergia, um, they will hold on to all of these markers um, anyway. So um, I like to rule out the dyssynergia just because it's a different pathway. And I, I don't like using drugs, so I'll send them to the pelvic floor physical therapist, which we have excellent ones here. Uh, most places don't. Um, and uh, so we'll do that. Um, but the cyst marker is still acceptable for sure. Um, but I like to do it after the pelvic floor, just because pelvic floor dysfunction might account for about 40% of um, constipation overall. And so that's why a lot of patients will cycle through a constipation diet. I don't know what that is, but a constipation diet or laxative, even from GI, because we're frustrated and we don't know what to do. So that's another area of research. So. Are there any age-related, people look at age-related effects to these drugs or different strategies? Um, 
because I could anticipate that, you know, gut function changes with time, with age, and therefore these, how do these strategies hold up, or should there be different pathways for an older patient in her 70s who comes in with new onsets and more symptoms? Absolutely. And the FDA is interested in this as well. Um, Pediatric studies are usually are required by the FDA. Um, whether or not they, the sponsors actually go through with that is, is another story. Um, so on the pediatric side, um, it's hard to enroll patients to do clinical trials for ethical reasons. Um, but if the drug's already on the market, um, it's a smaller population, the sponsor doesn't have skin in the game. So it's a problem, a policy problem. On the other end, if we're excluding patients over 65, we're not looking at our Medicare population, um, and uh, which is, uh, as, as, um, as our population ages, especially in the Upper Valley, that's an important question, and we don't know. So we don't know if the diet interventions are helpful or how these drugs um, are metabolized, how that affects um, their side effect profiles. We don't know. Should we be avoiding Elodium for chronic diarrhea? Um, no. Um, the guidelines say don't use it. The reason they say that, though, is um, it's a weak recommendation. They're, um, I like Imodium. I use it up front. It's one of my symptom-based drugs. Um, it's, um, it's something that you can take regularly um, within parameters, um, and I'll schedule it for patients when I know they're going to have um, diarrhea or if they're going to have fecal incontinence, because then they can feel um, less afraid to go outside of their house and to function. Um, a lot of people with those might say, I'm not going to go out today, uh, and that adds up over time. Um, so no, it's okay to use. The reason the guidelines don't like it is IBS is chronic, waxing and waves. And so the clinical trials that looked at ammonia, um, they're the efficacy and side effect profile also uh, changed month by month. Um, so long term, it kind of requires either close follow up or a diligent patient on whether or not modium is still appropriate. Um, but the guidelines are the guidelines. We everyone uses it, but just understanding those are its limitations. So. More questions? Do probiotics affect the breath test results? We don't know. I get that question a lot. Yeah. We don't know. Um, so we'll leave patients on them if they're on them. We'll take them off if they're not. And you know, potentially it could help um, to understand um, if the patient is still symptomatic, if they keep their original treatment regimen, how are they going to do with the breath test? It's a similar question to do you keep the PPI on or not? Usually we like to say not, but do you keep the PPI on or not when you're doing a pH study? Um, depending on the question you're answering, um, it could be important or not. Could it affect interpretation for sure? Um, but a recent um, uh, consensus statement um, didn't give an answer to that, and they basically said exactly that. So that's a great question. And then how long to keep them on before you say that would be clear? I mean, that's a big Yeah, and we know even less. So, um, so whether you do it for seven days in a week, 10 fingers on your hand, two weeks, 14, um, I don't know. Um, so we actually say, if you come on, you can stay on it. Uh, if you're off of it, you can stay off of it. I would at least try to keep it off for a couple weeks so that maybe it'll wash out. I don't know um, how long it's going to take for your bacterial flora to um, respond to that. Um, but uh, um, so, so yeah, we actually don't know right now. And there haven't been studies on that looking at the bacterial flora now. So there have been low five now, which is interesting. But. One last question. Uh, you mentioned lactose uh, in it. I wondered if you could talk about uh, how you manage lactose intolerance. A lot of patients come in and say, oh, I know I'm lactose intolerant. Do you test for it? Yes. How do you counsel them? Yes. Okay. Um, so lactose breath testing. Um, so the way, the way I was taught is we don't do it because um, what we do is we say, go home, take some high lactose food, be ready, see what happens. And clinically, I think that's better because the testing itself isn't perfect. Is it enough lactose to cause symptoms? Um, if a negative test is truly negative and they go home and they have issues, I'll just diagnose it clinically. The other problem with it is you can still have bacterial overgrowth. So if you do get a positive result, 
Is it positive because the patient has bacterial overgrowth, or do they truly have lactose intolerance? Um, so um, ideally, the patient should be having a glucose breath test or a lactose breath test up front. If that's negative, then they can go for lactose breath testing. Um, and I think the value of that test, much like the uh, blood test for IBS, is that it can, in um, when you're having the discussion with the patient, and um, if, if it has value in the positive test. So it gives them reassurance that yes, I do have a positive test. Um, and that, that can be useful um, in, in some situations for sure. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's lactose prep testing and then fructose as well. Um, is, uh, is, is similar to that uh, in that uh, in patients that you want to do fructose breath tests on, um, it's good to do the lactose or glucose first so that, because um, otherwise it'll be positive for both bacterial overgrowth or the intolerance. Thank you so much for an excellent talk. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Good. How are you? I know. How are things? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know.